Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And I'm pleased to be able to play a couple of interviews for you that I did a while back. Last March, at the Convergence Conference on Orcas Island, in addition to my presentation about the psychedelic hospice movement, which I podcast in Program 599, I also had the opportunity to record several conversations with two men who have been friends of mine for 20 years now. And I'm going to play those two conversations for you today. Before I begin playing the first interview, however, I first want to be sure to thank the team who organized these interviews and then did the recording, editing, and posting of the video on YouTube, which I'll link to in today's program notes. Now, this first conversation is with my friend Bruce Damer, and if you've been with us here in the salon for a while, then you are already familiar with Bruce's work. However, I have to admit that uh, even though I thought I knew a lot about all he's done, well, there were a couple new things he had to say here that have given me some new things to think about. So, uh, let's see what you think. Well, Bruce, uh, you know, we've known each other a long time, so your flight suit doesn't, doesn't surprise me. Mm. But I think for people that don't know you too well, particularly the ones that know you in the world of science, <laughs> explain your flight suit to us, if you would. So, this is a spiritual flight suit, and we are featuring wonderful patches, and this is the first patch on the flight suit, which is Terrence McKenna's personal logo from his letterhead, and it's called the Octoshroom. So you have a mushroom cap and an oct- octopus bottom. With big eyes. Big eyes, and uh, there's a patch here that just came in that's being added to the flight suit, and it's really just to, kind of like this, these things that you used to wear in the Navy, I mean, it it, it represents places you've been and come back for and some you haven't come back from. But and, just, and the the logo, you got that from Terrence's letterhead? Yes. This um, So I have a collection of some of the last documents of Terrence McKenna. And uh, on them, in, on his Apple Laser Writer, like inkjet <laughs> printed, was this strange little logo. And I realized this is Terrence's identity. Because he placed it on his letterhead, the letterhead for both Hawaii letters and Occidental letters. It's his logo. It's his personal logo. <laughs> so when we were thinking about this spiritual flight suits to be able to make all these patches for people and mm-hmm. sell the patches, um, I rushed in and grabbed the letter and said, let's do this. Let's bring Terrence back Good. to us and to Orcas here in Convergence. Well, those letters of Terrence, now Terrence's whole archive was destroyed by fire, but mm. these letters were not in the archive. They weren't in the archive. Where, where did you get the letters? Uh, they came through a rare books dealer, uh, and they're 15 years of correspondence. Wow. Yeah, that's it. I mean, as, as we know, when the fire happened, I think right. I called you up, <laughs> I mean, and I said did. that the, the elves have taken the incriminating I evidence. Mean, that was a bad day. That was a bad day. So and then we, we fought back by... Digitizing. That's, that's when we started the digitizing effort to save them what we kind of work we could. And uh, what we did, all those tapes are out gave us. I don't know how many of them. Are. Yeah, he gave us a big box of the trialogues. <laughs> and so you end up with that help feed the salon early on. Right. And yeah. so now we've done all the trialogues and, you know, 250 of Terrence's things. But the, the salon's grown into to more now. And you've appeared there quite a few times. <laughs> and, uh, and at Palenque Norte, you were at the very first Palenque Norte, one of our first speakers. First. So uh, you might want to mention where we met as well. Yeah, we met at Alchemical Arts 1999. And it was an event that was, you know, prepared for by Ken Symington and Rob Montgomery as an alternative to Palenque. So it was the artsy one that was going to happen in uh, like six months later after mm-hmm. Palenque, or before Palenque. And it had been planned, and then Terrence got ill. And Terrence had a seizure. And um, we realized that, that this was goodbye. This was actually probably right. the last event we would see Terrence. 
So it was very emotional for oh, yeah. a lot for of all us. of us. And, and, and I have to admit that uh, even though I was a Terrence McKenna fan at the time, but I was also very geeky. And as, uh, I probably told you that, but you know, I I went to the conference to meet you, <laughs> and, and Terrence was uh, frosting on the cake. But uh, uh, and it worked out well. You know, we've had twenty uh, some good years together. The spirit of the internet was written. And yeah, and we were doing the virtual worlds with avatars, and the, for Terrence, this represented. His dream of, of invisible landscapes mm -hmm. made visible by language. And so six months before we'd been at his house and done this alchemical virtual powwow with the 3D world, and it's online, there's video of it. And Terrence in an avatar named Zone Ghost doing the Macarena with a, a bug-eyed green lawnmower uh, with his son, mm. <laughs> uh, with Finn, and in a DMT-inspired world, to compare what cyberspace, cyberspace could deliver versus uh, what his worlds, and I was inexperienced with his worlds. But you were very experienced in the world of what then was uh, pre-virtual reality, you know, it, yep. it was pretty primitive, but uh, I, I think because uh, a lot of people who, who uh, maybe are following your work now will never find out about some of that old VR work. And old work. Tell about the Biota Conference. I, I mentioned it in uh, The Spirit of the Internet because it really, you, you had a psychedelic experience without taking drugs. Yeah, I, I from age about 9 or 10, would have these, what I now call endotrips, endogenous visions. And it's very common in human history. You know, Descartes, the founders of science did it through this, method. It's where Descartes saw the angel that told him that told him measure and number. Measure and number. And you know, Newton had visions like this, Einstein used thought experiments. So that's how I thought things were done. That's how I thought new things were brought into the world. As a child you thought that? Yeah. Really? And oh. so I I had my first thought experiment when I was fourteen when I asked the question, how did life begin on the earth? And in my mind's eye was this seething mass of molecules moving suddenly. I thought, oh, this is like one of Einstein's thought experiments when he was 16. He had the one where he was running alongside the beam of light. And I thought, oh, it's arrived. <laughs> and I was about to ask it the question, you know, how did life begin? Because I was trying to study how the molecules... This is during one of these vision experiments? Yeah, when I was, when I was 14. Mm -hmm. And I was about to ask it the question, uh, how... Can you show me how things can assemble from scratch and become life mm -hmm. when it asked me the question, figure out how I made a copy of myself? And that's when you were 14. When I was 14, I was like, uh, and then my brain tricked out. I was like, wait a minute, you're a machine, just like me, in effective, effectively. And you need a big machine to make a copy of a little machine. Like automobiles are made in automobile factories. And I don't see a big machine around you. You're just sitting there. And it winked as, as much as a bundle of molecules can wink and basically said to work on it. And 38, 40 years later, it came in another endovision. I saw it. I saw the whole system downloaded one, one day, 2013. It was, in, it, was, it was one of the happiest moments of my life. I imagine because... This is a dream you've, you've had since a, uh, 14 of mm -hmm. trying to figure out how life actually began. And from what I know of it, you're getting very close. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so um, I had the vision, and I'd met Dave Deemer in 2009, and I'd done my PhD work on computational simulations of complexity. Um, and I met him, and it was the perfect partnership. And here was this 72, 73-year-old senior renowned membrane biophysicist uh, chemist and me that had all this work on computational systems and i could think big i could think in terms of big Mac complex, macro level kind of. macro level we put ourselves together had tea twice a month for years and like gentlemen scientists we worked it out hmm. so he gave me papers to study he showed me the chemistry you know because that's what we have to work with is chemistry and then one day in 2013, it all just came. And I, I, I remember running upstairs and writing. I drew it all out. And, and then I, I wrote it. I said, this is what I've just experienced. I've become protocells moving in this pool, wet, dry cycling. And I've, I've seen how the polymers jump from the 
the bubble phase into the dry phase, and then they get squeezed down by the bathtub ring of drying lipid, and then they get ejected back into bubbles. And I said, this is a couple coupling of phases, and I saw all of the polymeric evolution going. It's about a 45-minute completely immersive endo trip. Wow. And I wrote it all out, sent it to Dave, and he said, you found it. You found the kinetic trap. You found it. So then we published a year later, and now it's being tested all over the world. And tell us about the testing some, too, how that's going on. How, how do you, first of all, this is a new sign. This is brand new. This is, this is different from, from what we've been taught about uh, Darwinian evolution. Not evolution, but the original. Yeah. I've been taught that life started in the sea. Right. You know, it, it would seem to be obvious because the planet has mostly the waters in the ocean. But chemists um, never like that proposal because stuff in water breaks down all the time. So until you have enzymes to make polymers, which are the stuff of life, um, you have to make them and grow them. But water is breaking them down. So you have things called enzymes that are fixing them all the time and making copies of DNA and RNA and, and, and enzymes and peptides and stuff. And so to get life started, you can't be in water all the time. And it turns out that Nature in pools on land, which is where Charles Darwin thought life would begin. In 1871, that's what he wrote. I didn't know that. Warm little pond. Really? He wrote yeah. two sentences that nailed it in 1871. What? Charles Darwin did. So we went back to And people Darwin. just ignored that all this time? Kind of. Yeah, so they, the field went down these rabbit holes, the spark chamber... Miller and Urey, you know the, the lightning and all the lightning, and the, that's the, the the subject of all scientific horror films, right? <laughs> yeah. And then this idea of life in the deep oceans at hydrothermal vents, but nothing works. And the chemists, you're against what's called the second law of thermodynamics. Mm -hmm. And if you're against that, <laughs> <laughs> so Dave uh, in the 80s and 90s figured out that if you drive solutions down in the presence of these membranous lipids. They squeeze all those building blocks together like a zipper, and then they form the long polymers. Huh. And we've done that for 10 years in the lab, and then I started taking it out to hot springs. So I put on my floppy Indiana Jones astrobiologist hat with a different flight suit, and I go to Yellowstone with permits, because you, know, you have to have this property permit, and we take acidic and alkaline waters, and we, were form we formed the compartments, we formed the vesicles. And then I took all of that science down to Rotorua in New Zealand last June, and we immersed 100 experimental vials in a heat block into a 95 Celsius bubbling, spitting hot pool, slightly acidic. And then I hydrated and dehydrated, just like we think was happening on the early Earth. And it worked. It worked so well. And you'll see that tonight, but it, it worked stunningly well. I mean, the results we got back. So we, so those little vials that had the dried films, like the bathtub rings in them, were cooking and making polymers. Every time I put a drop back in, a trillion compartments would butt off and be selected for, and then dry back down, squeeze back into the bathtub ring, make more and make more and make more. It's an engine. Because any, anything in life or in mechanics has to be driven by an engine process. And we found a natural engine. Because every time a geyser goes off, it fills the pool. And it's very regular. Mm -hmm. You know, like Old Faithful. Right. Yeah. So, so uh, where is this being researched now? Where are the labs oh take, test taking place? It's everywhere. Uh, Georgia Tech, University of Paris, uh, University of Washington here in Seattle. Um, UC Santa Cruz, where we started this thing, in Japan, in India, uh, in New University of New South Wales. And this is all research going on, right? Right, right now. As we and, speak. And we met up with geologists from Australia four years ago, and they took us to the site of the oldest evidence for life on Earth. And tonight uh, I'll talk, talk about that trek a little bit, because you know people sometimes think, well, these scientists sit around in, in IV Tower and... But you actually get out in the field. I you you went up to the, the shale up in uh, Canada. The <coughs> shale for the Biota Project. Right, and now Australia. Tell, tell about the trip to the Outback, what you all did. That was amazing. So we, we took this very bizarre bus that was a converted truck with a bus shell on the back because it's Outback, right? It's really rough country. And we drove 
from Shark Bay in Western Australia where you find these rock towers pointing out of the water and they're called stromatolites. And they're modern versions of the ancestors 3.5 billion years ago. So it's a saline bay and these rock towers are spongy on the top. You can push them and that's microbial mats that, that mineralize the layers underneath them so they don't lose access to sunlight when sand blows over them or, or washes over them. And so then we drove from there to the North Pole Dome region of Northwest Australia to, to find their deepest ancestors, 3.48 billion years old. The same thing as was at Shark Bay, alive, there they were. And I got to touch with my own hand uh, the vein of rock that was discovered that was the, the hot spring, the oldest hot spring ever discovered, the evidence for it, where they did thin slicing and imaging and they found life, uh, evidence for a whole ecosystem in there, in a hot spring on land. So it was like that came out, there was a smoking gun. So these surprised and shocked the geologists that, oh, this whole region was a volcanic caldera, that was a lake, and it wasn't a marine shore at all, and there's replete with living systems in the hot spring as far back as we can look. And it was like an arrow pointing back to the origin point maybe three, four, five hundred million years earlier, and we come up with a chemical theory that was working in the lab, and we said we formed a partnership with them. They, they, with the geologists. With the geologists, and then with planetary scientists, so we could guide NASA where to land on Mars on the next mission, which is coming up in, in a year and a half. Now, how did that interact with what you're doing at Origin of Life? How did that crossover come? If, um, well, a whole new hypothesis emerged that if life has to, to arise around hot springs, Mars um, had water, had liquid water on the surface and everything for maybe three, four, five hundred million years, and then the atmosphere started to get stripped away because it didn't have that magnetic dynamo to protect itself. And so it lost the liquid oceans and it became this incredibly desiccated, mummified place. So if life had started, it would have started around, we think, around uh -huh. hot springs. And as the oceans dried down, there's still volcanism, and there's still bubbling pools. Life would escape down the plumbing of those hot springs into what are called the refuge areas, which is rock. So that the only place life would be able to survive on Mars now is, is in rocks, hot, wet rocks. Not, never at the surface. So after this, the, some more research on Mars, if we see a headline <coughs> that says life discovered on Mars, we don't want people to think they're little Martian men walking. No. <laughs> I mean, we'll be lucky. I mean, if we can drill and find, it's unlikely we can find evidence in situ, like find those ripply rocks. Right. It's really tough. This is really tough work. So how, how is all this new <coughs> theory being accepted by the scientific community? Well, there's a set of colleagues that ignore us and don't mm -hmm. cite our work and, and don't talk about us because we're a threat. Uh, we're a threat to their missions to the icy moons of, of Saturn mm -hmm. because we, our argument is life cannot start in those icy oceans. Mm -hmm. So if it can't start there, it would have to be delivered from elsewhere. Right. So it's a threat to $10 billion missions. So they kind of step around us. They're not really doing science in a way. I wrote a, an email to one of them the, uh, just before coming to Orca saying, you know, I posted to the list and you haven't put it on the list. These are my colleagues. We must do science. I'm posting a challenge to you that, will, that, that NASA headquarters knows full well that we are the null hypothesis for finding life there, that, that our approach is that you, they're habitable but sterile. And so, but this particular scientist is protecting Oh, of course, it's true. But I pointed out this this is science, and we must have alternative hypotheses, and you must be challenged. And I do it in a very nice way, but... You've never done anything that wasn't nice, Bruce. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you are a truly gentle man. Well, thank you. you are. And, and maybe expand a little bit on your work with NASA, too, because you've done more than just help find the proper landing sites on Mars, which you've done, but you've been associated with NASA for a long time. A long time, so I... I started by introducing the same three-dimensional worlds that we introduced to Terrence the same year that put Terrence into cyberspace. Mm. Uh, I put NASA into cyberspace because we showed worlds of recreating the Apollo moon landing 
1969 with an Apollo astronaut being an avatar and walking around and <laughs> talking about it all. And he's a Navy guy, by the way, of course. <laughs> uh, anyway, uh, but then a NASA chief scientist saw this and started funding us. So I had maybe 12, 14 years of funding. Yeah. Did 25 projects, visualizing every space mission, even uh, designing new ones. So I designed the reference mission to take people to an asteroid surface in 2007 to help steer NASA in that direction. So we used the press, covers of magazines to steer NASA toward asteroids. That's Which is what they're doing now. That's what they're doing now. So we did a, a course correction on NASA. It was me working with an interior and an inside group. And you had an insider? <laughs> we had General Pete Warden, a two-star, right? So you know two stars. I, I've had some familiarity with him. Yeah, with him, yeah. <laughs> So, so he basically, in his office at Ames Research Center, said, you can do this. You can't get fired. <laughs> You're not a civil servant. You know, can't fire civil servants very right. easily. But anyway, so we steered NASA in 2007 toward these targets. And then in 2014, I, I met Peter Janiskins from the SETI Institute. And we co-designed, along with a, a world-renowned balloon designer named Julian Knott, a radical new spacecraft which could open the solar system to human settlement and to life itself. And it's this, it's related to the origin of life. Because for life to start, you have to have membranous enclosures, like a little balloon mm -hmm. or a little bubble around polymers to get them to interact. In order to start life in space, you need to do a membranous enclosure around an asteroid, which contains all the building blocks for life. Because... Mm -hmm. Effectively, life started because of all this stuff raining down on the Earth into the pools oh, right. to get us going. So when we go out and we find trillions of small and big objects, some of them have ice in them and methane in them and, and uh, amino acids and fatty acids and, and metals and everything is right. there. And so we could put a balloon around it, put an atmosphere in. We can control their tumble. We can stop them from, they're all rotators. Right. And if they're rotating, you can't work with them. And then we can extract water by melting them. And, and that water is valuable to create fuel stations, which is what Elon Musk is going to need to go to Mars. So we've stood up a company now that's being formed to do this, to uh, work initially with the Department of Defense to do satellite servicing for their big birds. So instead of an asteroid, just encapsulate a great big satellite that's out of control and they need right. to fix it. And we can move them around, and we can service them in the gas-filled enclosures. So they finance the, the business, and then we go after asteroids just in time for Elon's Mars mission. We can say, you can launch all that fuel and water from Earth, or we can deliver it to you. Give us a contract. Give us a purchase order. And without drilling a hole in the Earth. <laughs> without drilling a hole in the Earth. And we, we can then make a sustainable system for spaceflight. And my favorite of all, and you'll see it in the talk, is this fantastic uh, intermediate state where we have an icy, rocky asteroid. We melt it down, but we don't take the water out into our tanks. We, we let it be a liquid globule. And just like those fishbowl, so those globe, glass globe things mm -hmm. that have shrimp in them and they right. all in these light and they're sealed, same thing. We make a biosphere. And then it's a world. It's a small world. It could be 500 feet across. It could be quite big or a mile across put life in there, and that sustains life. Huge space colonies, huge structures could be built with these things as a component. And you wouldn't have to take a whole lot of equipment and material no, up? not a lot. And we can do gas mining of the nickel and iron out of the asteroids just with gas extraction. No grinding, no nothing like that. And then 3D print in space. Mm. So it's called the Mond Carbonyl Gas Process. And it's a way of extracting minerals with gas, not with grinding up and smelting because I grew up in a mining town right and it's impossible to imagine doing that kind of equipment in zero G and <laughs> no way so so we may have solved all three problems fueling stations and water and consumables gas mining to make big parts for big megastructures in space and then the food supply but you know Bruce you're involved in in really re writing the rules about the origin of life, possibly, if it tests out. You're involved in all of this, these uh, NASA projects. You've helped locate uh, landing sites on Mars. You've uh, done a lot of the, the training and stuff. And then you've done all of this virtual reality work. 
for young people that are watching today, uh, I think it'd be worthwhile for them to know that you weren't born rich, you didn't have a silver spoon in your mouth. And what did you, how, how did you go from a 14-year-old boy to, to thinking about the origin of life to where you are now, but that first few steps, and, and I'd sure like to hear about the, the yeah. uh, mm. European adventure when you set up a lab over there. Yeah, it, it, um, I, so I'm going back to my hometown of Kamloops, B.C. Uh, next week mm. to do a talk in a big theater in the round for the, for mm -hmm. the whole town and getting the Distinguished Alumni Award. Really? The local Congratulations. University. Yeah, it's great. It's not, it's not many people <laughs> get that from their hometown. You know? yeah, I'm, the, I'm the weirdest thing that's come out of that town, probably. <laughs> that doesn't surprise me. Other than train robbers and cattle rustlers. <laughs> but uh, well, they're pretty standard, but... I, I was very dreamy, so I I was adopted at birth, so I didn't I didn't know that until I was about eight or nine, until my father told me. But I was always thought I was like a spaceship, that that somehow I was connected but disconnected from the world. Because when I came home from the hospital, my mother said, "You were in your own world." Mm. Like I was completely crossed over, fully autistic. I think, like I was very nonverbal. So in a way. These kind of kids that end up starting up that way build internal landscapes. And I think Terrence did. That's why he, he, he could do what he could do and he could tell the story. Mm -hmm. Helped to be Irish, too. <laughs> uh, but in, I found out I have uh, at least a third of my genes are Irish. Of course. I knew that from when I met you. <laughs> so um, I was very dreamy. I lived in the worlds of the imagination and I learned how, and I think, I was actually chemically changing my brain. Because when I was nine... Just by I, thinking? Well, when I was about eight or nine, I would notice that if I came in from a really active day of playing spaceship or something, and I tried to close my eyes to go to sleep or take a nap, I would see these color flashes. Just And, mm -hmm. I, and people would think, oh, that's just hypnagogy or just overstimulation. Mm -hmm. But for me, it was like the best color TV I ever saw. And we didn't have a color TV. Our neighbors did. Uh, and I learned how to do the dials on my consciousness to turn off my consciousness, to let the colors grow. So I'd shut down thinking altogether. Um, language, words, wouldn't, I'd shut all that off, turn it off, turn it off. And then the system would grow and become worlds. So I could... I could tune the channel for that and just enter into these worlds. And when I was a teenager, I just escaped into those worlds and drew thousands of pictures of, the, of these places, like thousands. And then that became my profession. So in my own... In, in, in profession by, uh, you know, computer... Everything, work. computer code, virtual worlds, doing the chemistry, designing spacecraft, I could use that dialing mechanism... Mm -hmm. And sometimes it would come as a what I call an endo trip now, endogenous rather than exogenous tripping. Um, it would just come as a huge download, like the origin of life. And I would just set my system up to prepare for those. And when they came, I had a whole system set up to, to uh, draw them out, download them, experience them. And it was almost like an interaction with an entity. So I, it was I, communicating back to you, or you could ask it a question. I could ask it questions, yeah, and it would show me things, and I could ask it, "Why are we in cold water?" or "Why, why are you showing me this?" And it would come as a nonverbal knowing, but it was a dialogue with an ethereal, like an ether, like a. And at the same time, I realized that that the, the universe was complex. Like the living world would send us synchronous events constantly. So when I was 11 or 12, I did A-B testing, where I'd say, I'm going to go into my mental state and walk down the street to try to find a kid that I need to return a baseball to. But I'm, I'm going to try that, and I would try that. My, I'm concerned and worried about returning that baseball. How old are you now when you did about that? About 11. Oh, boy. <laughs> and then I'm going to switch to the field version, which is just guide me. And just, so I would just be guided. It would always work better. So I do this over and over again to, to test to decide which system to use. You've been a scientist a long time. Yeah. So, <laughs> so I switched to the OS of being guided because I would find the boy in the state of being guided and not worried about it, and I would be in a better mood, and that I would find them in exactly the right moment, give them their baseball back, and they became my best friend instead of like worrying about it. 
And so that's how I've led my entire life, is really attuned to that field that's always sending signals and messages, the timing and everything. It's, it's, I call it the master choreography. Yeah. <laughs> the great dance. The great dance, yeah. <laughs> so we only have a, a, a couple minutes here. In closing, there's going to be a lot of young people. Some of them are going to be inspired to be uh, go into space work, some into biology, some into computers. And what, what kind of advice would you give to people who are, are multifaceted like you that are you know, not sure which direction to go and then how do you get there? I think that's really just it's quite a formula. Trust your own imagination. Trust your own visionary experience, but test it. Verify it. So a lot of people can get visionary downloads and go off, off kilter on them, really. You have to find mentorship. You have to find someone older, probably, that's going to help you shape your ideas into something real. And it's true if they're tripping. I mean, they have a vision when they're tripping or when they're meditating or whatever, and it seems very vivid and real. You have to take it and test it, and you need, you need help for that. You need mentorship. Otherwise, you just create new religions and stuff. Right. Which is, you know, we just don't need We any, don't need anymore. <laughs> we need solutions. And so finding that mentor is key. And they'll guide you into beautiful work, whether it's in the arts or sciences or anything. Find an elder, actually. I did the same thing. I had a mentor, and, and he guided me for many, many years. So uh, uh, I couldn't have gotten along without him. And I think that's excellent advice. Yeah. So. And I'll leave you with one what the, the, the great, uh, in a sense, the, the huge pay dirt or from this science, uh, which has just occurred to us in the last few months, is that we have discovered, or we may discover, that we come not from a common ancestor. Because you know, thinking to this point has been that life is red in tooth and claw and competing, and then developing its genes, right. which is certainly true. But in fact, the origin of life... Uh, was not, you didn't have these little cells that could compete and fight it out and duke it out. They didn't have the technology to duke it out. They only had the technology to get together and to collaborate. And what we're seeing in the, our little dishes and in the progenote proposal that we've made is that life started as a common community. There was no common, the common ancestor was a common community and the community was in collaboration and that this is actually the metric on which life began. And when you start seeing through this lens, and I'm going to present this in the University of Cambridge in, in a week and a half, to the center of evolutionary biology, that uh, there are no individuals. And the, in, the individual is a fiction of, of the human mind. Because birds don't feel their individuality. They're part of a network of singing birds. And when we were tribal, we were not individual, we were in this network body. And so in the last 2,000 years, we've made this fiction up of an individual separate from others. And the separation has created this grief on, on the planet, you know, this myth of separation. And so if science shows in the 2020s that we come from a common community and that communities and networks and collaboration are the predominant and sole mechanism of our creation and our evolution, it will roll into the culture like relativity did in the 1920s from Albert Einstein. It has powerful spiritual and transformative cultural power. And you know, there's no better place to be talking about this than at the convergence here on Orcas Island because it's a community that's converging together and who knows what will come out of the new life out of this. Who so, knows, yeah. Who knows. So, Bruce, I, I really thank you for your time and for your long friendship, and I look forward to our next adventure together. I look very much like <laughs> it might be tonight. <laughs> it could well be. <laughs> be well, my friend. Happiness. 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 If you only take away one thing from the many ideas that Bruce just spoke about, I hope that it's what his takeaway has been from his origin of life work. If, uh, like me, when you were taught about the theory of evolution, you were told that all life originated from single cells in the ocean, and they competed for life. 
However, the work that Bruce and his colleagues are doing points in a different direction. If their new theory is correct, then the cornerstone of life, all life, is community and cooperation. And it seems to me that our communities are still what sustain our lives, which seems to indicate that we should perhaps give a little more thought to ways in which we can strengthen the various communities in which we participate. And now I'd like to play the recording of another interview that I did while at the Convergence on Orcas Island. And this one is with my friend Dr. Charlie Grobe. And <laughs> at the end of this conversation, Charlie tells me a story about Ralph Messner that simply blew me away. So let's listen to that now. Charlie, you know, it's, it's, uh, we've known each other a long time, so it's uh, kind of hard to interview somebody you really know. But I do know some things about you that, that probably hasn't been widely spread. And I think one of the most important things, for, particularly for young people watching today, is how did you get into psychedelic research? What prompted you to do this? I mean, that's a huge thing to do when you were young. I mean, nobody was talking about psychedelics. What prompted you to do it? Funny you should ask. Because <laughs> uh, I do have a story. Good. So, you know, in the late 60s, I was with many others of my generation. I, I went off to college, and uh, I went to Oberlin College in Ohio, a very progressive school, and uh, it was... Uh, you couldn't miss the fact that psychedelics were a big phenomenon. Now, what year was this? 68. 68, okay. And uh, I noticed that some of the most uh, interesting, adventurous of my peers were talking about their experiences. So inevitably, I, you know, my interest grew, and mm -hmm. I had some experiences. But I, I also learned that uh, taking a powerful, mind-altering drug like this in the context of a college dormitory where there are all sorts of uncontrolled factor was not an ideal setting. So I put my interests aside in regards to my own experience for a number of years. But fast forward, I at Oberlin in my junior year, I, I, I left school. I, I had I was ill for a while, I had infectious mononucleosis, took some time off and uh, did a lot of traveling, returned to New York, and got a, got a job at the uh, Maimonides Medical Center Dream Research Laboratory. Which that was, was Stanley Krippner's place. Stanley right? Krippner and Monty Ullman, Montague Ullman, Chuck Onerton. That was their operation. They ran it for almost 10 years. They did fascinating work studying the phenomena of dream telepathy. And our study was actually funded by uh, NIMH, and at, at a certain point there was also military funding involved. So this is, this is around 1972. And it was, it was dream research the military actually put some funding out for? Yeah, they, they were very, dream telepathy. They were very interested in, uh, you know, topics like remote viewing and whether sensitives could pick up, or, you know, manifest this phenomena. And, and what so was your, your My job, job? was, uh, they, they, when I was in need of a, of a job, it just so happened, a job opened up there. And uh, I was the all-night research tech who monitored the EEGs, set up the structures for the for the telepathy study, put the dreamer in a sensory isolation chamber, hooked him up to EEG leads, had the sender in another room down the hall, instructed them. You know, the, they, they were supposed to send an image? An to image, the yeah. The, the sender would open up an envelope that contained a, a, a picture, and I was not aware of usually a reproduction of a, of a piece of art. I was not aware of what was in the sealed envelope. And, um, and, and so all night long, I was monitoring EEGs from my control room. There was more than one person sleeping in it? Just one, well, just one that I was monitoring. Oh, okay. The sender had his instructions okay. to send at a certain time. Then he, he or she could just go yeah. to sleep. But the, the dreamer, we were monitoring, I was monitoring his, his sleep EEG, and I could easily identify when a, uh, a dream, a REM episode would occur. I'd wait for the REM episode to slowly end, and then I would wake the dreamer up by an intercom, and I would tape record, and I'd say, um, Lorenzo, Lorenzo, what's going through your mind? And then I'd record your dream. So to yeah, and this so my job basically was from about uh, ten at night to uh, six in the morning. So I had to stay up all night, and uh, and I was there wasn't a, much excitement going on. Not, not this is in the basement of a 
of a psychiatric uh, building at a big hospital. So no, no, no other stimulation, and, nor should there have been for this kind of study. But I, um, I found that one of the, invest the chief investigators, uh, Stanley Krippner, had a wonderful library, which really had everything written on psychedelics, books, articles in the professional literature. And I had already established some interest in this area just from my limited experience in, in college a few years earlier. And I started to read, and I read voraciously. And around this time, my father, who was a physician, was very concerned about what he perceived as my evident lack of direction. So he said, so I mean, you dropped out of college. Well, I did drop out of college. Job, yeah. It was that, full disclosure. Um, he said, son, if you ever figure out what you want to do with your life, I want you to call me. I don't care what time of the day or night it is, you call me. So here I am one night reading this fascinating material on psychedelics, and it just hit me. I had this epiphany. I knew what I wanted to do. And my dad had said, call him. Well, it was three in the morning, but he said, any time. And I took him at his word. I called him, woke him up from a deep sleep, and he finally figured out what I was calling about. So I said, well, son, what is it? I said, Dad, I figured out what I want to do. What? I want to study psychedelics. They're fascinating. There's so much we could learn about the brain, interface between brain and mind. We could learn so much more about mental illness. And there's these remarkable treatment models that help people with conditions that conventional treatments seem to fall far short. This is what I want to do. And so my father paused for quite a while, and then he said, well, son, there might be something to what you say, but no one will listen to you unless you get your credentials. Oh, I knew I had to go back to school, which I was trying to avoid. But the writing was on the wall, because this, this was a vision I, I knew in my heart was what I had to do. So I... Uh, you know, I, I went back to school, I went to Columbia, went through their pre-med program, I went to medical school, and, uh, and yeah, but, but I tell you, in medical school, we had, in my second year of medical school, so 1976, when psychedelic research was completely halted, no, nothing was being permitted, and um, I... Uh, um, we had an, all everyone in the my medical school class was instructed to find an article in the research literature and then distill it and present it, present the methodology, the rationale, the methodology, the the findings, the implications to the class. So I, I knew exactly what article I, I went. I made a beeline to Stanislav Grof's nineteen seventy three very important article in the International Journal of Pharmacopsychiatry describing in depth his work at Spring Grove, Maryland, part of the University of Maryland system, the Maryland Psychiatric Research Center, where he was treating individuals with terminal cancer who had overwhelming existential anxiety and depression with uh, either LSD or another psychedelic, DPT, dipropyltryptamine. And he got remarkably good results from a patient population that would be generally regarded as fairly hopeless and for whom very little effort was being mm -hmm. applied to help their kind of psychological or psycho-spiritual status. So I presented this article to my class and I was really excited. What kind of, I was wondering what kind of questions are they going to ask me? What kind of comments are they going to have about psychedelics and medicine? And I presented and then I waited for hands to go up. Nothing. Dead silence. Dead silence. Then I realized, oh, I'm not supposed to talk about this. And that was your new career choice. <laughs> that was my new career. This is, this is a taboo topic. And so for years, I just kept my interest to myself. I remember every month I had a little ritual. The first of the month, I'd go to the medical library, and I'd take out the latest issue of Index Medicus before the, the Internet and PubMed deadline. Mm -hmm. This is how you found out what was going on with particular topics in the entire field of medicine, the other sciences. So I'd look up terms like lysergic acid diethylamide, you know, mescaline hallucinogens, and there was never anything of great... You know, so showing basic up. animal stuff like yeah. the effects on the retina of a cat or the reflex of a salamander, <laughs> <laughs> but nothing on the human experience because it simply wasn't being permitted. So... Um, 
But I, 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 I maintained my interest. My father said uh, I needed credentials, and while well, I was on a path of getting credentials, I finished college. I went to medical school. I went into, I did some medical training. I even did some neurology training, and then I went into psychiatry, and then I actually trained in child psychiatry as well. Got full-time faculty positions, first at Johns Hopkins and at UC Irvine, and, and finally for the last 26 years at UCLA. And it's been at UCLA that I've really been able to dive into what I really wanted to do from the get-go. You know, Charlie, you, you, I've never really heard you tell anybody this, but I tell people about it all the time. As far as I know, not many, if anybody else, has ever done a government-sanctioned human study with three different substances, MDMA, psilocybin, and ayahuasca, which right. was in another country, but it was a government-approved. So you have done human studies with, with three different substances, government-approved, how did you push that string uphill? How did you get those things done? Well, I, 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 I think, yeah, and this was starting off in the, uh, the very early 90s when it simply didn't seem to be possible until, I must say, uh, a precedent was set by Rick Strausman at New, University of New Mexico getting permission to run a, DMT, a basic DMT study of normal volunteers, Deborah Mash, University of Miami, with Ibogaine. Actually, she came after me. I was just, uh, Strausman was my... Kind of example I followed, and I um, it was just persistence. You know, I worked with I've always worked with very talented colleagues who shared the vision, shared the passion, and these protocols would become collaborative efforts. And uh, I would submit them to the regulatory agencies, starting with the FDA, and generally within a month they'd be bounced back with a you know a, a long list of critiques, and I just you know very carefully, methodically addressed each of the critiques. I made protocol adjustments when it was necessary and uh, kept resubmitting and developed a dialogue. And eventually my first study, which was an MDMA study, was approved. And it was just really persistence. You have a vision, you know what you want to do, you just need to get from here to there, and you need to work through the system, and you need to do so in a collaborative manner. And uh, and again, at the end of the day, my experience with the FDA, I felt, was very positive. They didn't necessarily give me sanction to do what I initially said I wanted to do. But with the back and forth, I think they helped me create a, a, a better and safer protocol. And I learned a lot about the import of, of establishing, first and foremost, very strong safety parameters. So, you know, I hadn't heard this from you before, but so you're saying that perhaps uh, the long delays and the hassles you got actually did oh, I provide think so. some benefit. I think I had a better, you know, it really honed my focus, and I, had, I think I, at the end of the day, I think I had a better protocol than what I started out with. And then, then it was a matter of um, enacting, you know, um, manifesting the protocol in a research study, and I built up a team at my hospital. I've worked at Harbor UCLA Medical Center for the last 26 years. I'm actually the division director of child and adolescent psychiatry. That's my day job, and uh, you know, on the weekends I do my, my, my research cases. And actually, I got to see your grand rounds one time where you talked about the research case with the end-of-life psilocybin, and uh, I was very impressed with how receptive they were, which was different than your experience when you were a student, you know, that... Uh, oh, with the... With your, my, your colleagues. My, my colleagues. Oh, I have another story for you. When I was being recruited to become the division chief of child psychiatry at, uh, at Harbor UCLA, I met with the chairman, Dr. Milton Miller, very experienced, uh, very wise man, um, and uh, I met with him a few times, and I finally said, you know, Dr. Miller, I have some unusual interests for a child psychiatrist, and I think you need to know what they are. So I've brought with me some articles I've published, some manuscripts that I'd like to get published, and some protocols I'd like to do in the future for, of researching this area. So I gave it to him. I asked him to read it. I came back several weeks later, and uh, we're talking, and I say, well, Dr. Miller, did you have an opportunity to look at the material I gave you? And he said, yeah. And I asked, well, what do you think? And he said, well, it's interesting. And I still needed, I needed an answer. So I said, okay, so you know what I'm interested in doing, so I have to ask you, am I too crazy for you? And without batting an eye, he said, well, you know, you're a lot crazier than I thought you were. 
but still well within my MMPI. <laughs> and that was the moment I knew I had to accept this. I could not turn this job down. Right. Now, years later, Dr. Miller told me a story that in the 50s, when he was a chairman at the University of Wisconsin, he had a patient, uh, a very, very deeply depressed man who had been hospitalized for months, and none of the none of the treatments of the time had made a dent in his depression. Then out of sheer desperation, one day, he administered the man psilocybin, sat with him for a number of hours. The man said absolutely nothing. He was just sitting there. So eventually Dr. Miller left. He knew he was leaving the man in a safe place. It was an inpatient psychiatric uh, unit. He came back the next morning, couldn't find his patient. So he went to the nurse's station and asked, well, where's Mr. So-and-so? Oh, Mr. So-and-so called his wife to pick him up, and he signed out. So Dr. Miller is very concerned and made repeated calls over the next days and weeks and months and found out that shortly after he, the man went home, he went back to work and had returned to completely normal function. The depression had entirely remitted. And this was with no conversation with his therapist? No, no, no the therapist just sat there. <laughs> and no great in-depth discussion of what was going, you know, what had happened apart from the fact that he was ready to resume his life. So Dr. Miller understood. He didn't go around talking about his experiences, but uh, he understood the potential value when utilized in it, these compounds, when utilized, you know, in, in a safe setting with proper monitoring and, and, and with many people that need the opportunity for ongoing integration. Right. So uh, he knew what the potential was. And when I came along with my kind of wild, you know, out of left field ideas, <laughs> he got it. He knew it and he, he quietly supported me. And, and, my, my, and by the research institute at my hospital was always very supportive. And um, I think they, uh, they appreciated the value of what I was doing. And, uh, and even though we sometimes had to work under you know, difficult conditions in terms of rooms we were provided and the like, we, we've, you know, we, we managed mm -hmm. to do several studies there, which I think have, you know, have had some, some value and have helped to move the field right. forward. But you know, I, I was thinking as you were talking how we, we were talking at breakfast about building this work on the, the shoulders of giants, you know, the people who have yeah, been before. Yeah. But even even the chairman of your department who had that one experience back in fifty he's he, he was all, one of the leaders too oh, that just we don't really know who all is supporting our work. Exactly. <clears throat> you know what I think a lot of people don't realize is that in the fifties and into the early sixties Psychedelic research was the cutting edge of psychiatry, right. and you know, in, in terms of anticipating future treatment models, because investigators were finding remarkable positive responses in patient populations that you don't expect to respond to your right. treatment. Uh, first and foremost, chronic alcoholics, one, still one of the most vexing populations, most difficult population to treat. You know, you, you, we have twelve-step programs, which were value to some people, but not, it's not the right fit for all people. And for those whom it's not the right fit, they're kind of out of luck. There's not a whole lot out there. Right. But investigators, starting with uh, Humphrey Osmond in, in um, Saskatchewan, mm -hmm. uh, you know, in the 50s, were getting astonishingly good responses. So the pioneer generation, you know, really establish a foundation which we could learn a great deal from. And maybe this gives me the moment to plug my book, or one of my books, uh, um, that I did with Roger Walsh, called, uh, uh, and also assistance from Gary Bravo, uh, Higher Wisdom, Eminent Elders Explore the Continuing Impact of Psychedelics. And Which is one of my favorite books of yours, because you. it, it talks about all these people, and I remember I got to be, meet Betty Eisner in your office one time. You were interviewing oh, her yeah. for the book, and what a, a thrill that was, yeah. you know, because... Uh, she was one of the early pioneers. Yeah. That, that you you knew so many of these people, and we in fact right. just lost one of them. That's right. Oh, and my, my, what, one of my greatest friends and greatest teachers, Ralph Metzner, passed away uh, a week ago yesterday, uh, on March fourteenth. And and Ralph, you know, Ralph started off in this field as a graduate student in nineteen sixty, working with uh, Timothy Leary and Richard Alpert at Harvard, mm -hmm. and. Uh, and when the Harvard experiment unraveled, you know, Ralph continued with his life and 
became really a, a great scholar and a remarkably prolific writer and a teacher of the psychedelic experience, the value of psychedelics, uh, and other topics as well. You know, ancient mythologies, the value of, you know, understanding the belief systems of indigenous people. Uh, you know, Ralph was a, uh, just a, uh, a tremendous support. And, uh, and I think he saw that what we were doing, our, our generation was doing, was validating the vision right. that he and his colleagues had. But because of the cultural conditions of the time, they were never, it was never allowed to manifest. And here mm-hmm. he saw perhaps the beginning, the initial steps now for what might eventually become a realization of a shared vision that many of us have had. Now, it may, it may take the next generation, mm-hmm. the younger generation, who's just moving up now to, to really move things forward in a, in a, in a vigorous, proactive and, and way. You know, but I'm very, I'm very hopeful about I, the future. I don't know if this is true, but in my mind, my fantasy world is that the younger generation is also moving into positions of authority in the FDA and the DEA, right. and they're getting more reasonable about these things. Oh, I think so. I think so. I think, and, and again, with the regulatory agencies, I was very apprehensive when I first approached them in the early 90s. I had heard some scary stories from, from others. But my experience has been nothing, nothing but positive throughout. They, they didn't always let me do what I said I wanted to do, but they're willing to dialogue with me and go back and forth. For instance, with the um, my psilocybin study, uh, you know, I was asking for a, 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 a rather high dose. I felt that that, that would... Be more likely you to... You know me, be aware of the dreaded underdose. Well, well <laughs> but, I, but be so careful I agree about overdosing, yeah. about giving too high... In any event, they, we went back and forth. They said, look, no one has worked with this compound in decades. And this is a. these were people with advanced stage cancer, with anxiety. These are very vulnerable people. Right. Let's tone down the, the Probably dose. Probably very sensible. So we toned it down to more of a moderate dose, mm-hmm. and we established really strong safety parameters... And our subjects did very, very well. And you know, we've published our, our, our findings in, in, in one of the leading journals in psychiatry, the Archives of General Psychiatry, since been renamed JAMA Psychiatry. And I think that was also reflects the degree to which the leaders in the field were ready to once again open up the dialogue and look objectively at the issue of psychedelics, including their potential application in treatment settings, particularly with patient populations who do not respond that well right. to conventional treatments. And, and the evidence of, of the groundbreaking work that you and many others have done is what's going on today. There's a lot of psychedelic research compared to what there was 20 years ago. Oh. So, so what are some of the, your colleagues well, doing? Well, let, let, let me mention, um, you know, I, for, since 1993, I, I've been uh, on the board. Actually, I'm a founding board member of the Hefter Research Institute. This was a vision of Dave Nichols, a uh, very, very prominent uh, uh, chemist and pharmacologist initial, at Purdue for many years, now at University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill. He had a vision of organizing an institute that would facilitate the development of both basic science and clinical research with psychedelics moving forward. So with with the Hefter Research Institute, I, I, they, they supported my, my psilocybin studies. They supported subsequent psilocybin end-of-life work at NYU and Johns Hopkins. By supported, you're talking about they put cash on the line. Well, so yeah, they, they we, we, ra- the, we raised the right. funding. And, um, and you know, it, it, back in the 90s, it was difficult to raise funding. So our study was done on a shoestring. Yeah. Those that followed, I think, have uh, had more generous funding. And they've had more, you know, they've been able to study more subjects. But um, Hefter has played a significant role helping to move this process along. Hefter also provided some funding for Dennis McKenna and I to go to uh, the Brazilian Amazon in the early 90s with our friend and colleague Jace Calloway to conduct what is what was really the first ayahuasca research study in human subject, working with uh, members of the Unia de Vegetal, the UDV Ayahuasca Syncretic Church. And that was an, that, that was a uh, remarkable experience for me personally. And I think we, we, we published some really important right. data, which over the years <laughs> other investigators have followed up on. I will say other investigators generally from outside of the U.S., so investigators in Brazil, 
Uh, Jordi Riva, a very accomplished researcher in Barcelona, Spain. Um, it's not been possible to conduct uh, 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 prospective ayahuasca studies or administer ayahuasca in the U.S. for a variety mm-hmm. of reasons. You know, ho- hopefully there will be such right. studies in the future. But uh, Hefter has been very much involved with with, with that area. Didn't it's Hefter about, uh, support Franz Wollenweider? Oh, for the, the Hefter... Center in Zurich, the University of Zurich, with Franz Vollenweider, you know, the most uh, experienced and productive neuroimaging researcher of psychedelics over the last 25 years. Hefter has also uh, sponsored the work of uh, Michael Bogenschutz, first at the University of New Mexico, now at NYU, who ex- is a substance abuse expert and has developed some excellent protocols. Uh, really replicating the old work with alcoholics, hmm. a, a psychedelic treatment model. Some of the Canadian work that Humphrey yeah, the Humphrey Osmond's work and later Stanislaw Groff's work and, and, and others. So, so Michael has been doing some excellent work. And then a, a young researcher at the University of Alabama, Peter Hendricks, has a psilocybin <coughs> treatment model uh, research study with cocaine addicts and crack addicts, including... Uh, subjects from the very bottom of the socioeconomic ladder. And I think in many respects, this is an important study, not only because Peter's getting good treatment outcomes, but because he's working with you know, very, very poor people, very desperately. Tell me again Situ- what university that is? University of Alabama. That's what I thought. Yeah. I mean, I, I've spent a lot of time in the Deep South, and to, to, for them to be yeah. that enlightened is thought? encouraging. Well, it's interesting, because we're, we're talking about Humphrey Osmond, who he was British, and then as a young man migrated to uh, Saskatchewan in northern Canada. And uh, and then after retirement, he ended up at the University of Alabama in an emeritus position. I didn't know so that. There is a, uh, wow. there was a foundation. But Peter Hendricks is doing some great work with his cocaine and crack addiction treatment. He also did a very interesting study looking at recidivism rates for uh, uh, individuals who had been incarcerated. And he made the astonishing finding that individuals who've been in prison, who had a prior experience with a psychedelic, they were far less likely to return to prison after being released. Really? And I think the implications there are, I think, very interesting. Right, they are. And it, it, to some degree, it touches upon an old study of... Uh, uh, of the Harvard group in the early 60s right. working in a state prison. Although some of the methodology, Rick Doblin has pointed out, some of the methodologies were problematic. Some of that was questionable. Oh, but I'll tell you a great See, Ralph. We're uh, almost out of time, oh, so I'm going to have to kind of cut you off. Ralph, there, I had a Charlie. good story. Okay, well, let me tell you. We got, said, go ahead. It's about Ralph. Who okay, I'm good. Thinking about a great deal. Me because, too. Yeah, he, he meant a great deal to me. So you know about Ralph's first psychedelic experience? No. He was a graduate student in the early 60s working under Tim Leary, and Ralph was put in charge of the state prison project. And his first experience, personal, and then the model was you not only administer the psilocybin to the prisoner, you take it yourself. It was in a hospital prison ward yes, with so, a bunch of hardcore criminals. So Ralph took psilocybin for the first time that as a I convicted murderer. He said for the first part of the session, it was sheer terror, paranoia. And then he realized, he had this realization, we're all the same uh, under our skin, and this guy's as afraid of me as as I am of him. And he bonded with the guy. They had a very rich, rewarding, valuable, therapeutic wow. discussion. And uh, and that really launched Ralph's career as well. I've never heard that before. Yeah. Well, you know, we're, we're essentially out of time, but you, you talked about launching Ralph's career, and you talked about this young uh, researcher. Do you have any advice to a young person today who wants to get into it? Get a credential, I guess, is what well, I, I The advice my father gave me, I think still holds up today, get credentials. He says, no one will listen to you. Unless you get credentials, and I and I think that's important. And the other is, um, you know, be, just be persistent. You know, you're 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 bound to hit obstacles. You know, and even right. though we're going through what's known as a psychedelic renaissance, there's still is a, a oh, yeah. lot of resistance in our culture. There are a lot of places where this would not be necessarily be appreciated. Just just establish dialogue, friendly report. Don't get defensive. Don't get angry, and just be patient and persistent. And my personal perspective is optimize safety first and foremost. You have to, it's, a, it, it's essential to understand what is necessary to establish the strongest of safety parameters because 
when people go off the rails, I mean, it's it, it's just it's bad for your project. It's bad for them. It's uh, and it can attract a lot of negative, sensationalized right. publicity, just like the sixties. That's why investigators today need to do their due diligence, properly screening people, preparing people, facilitating under optimal conditions, and then helping with integration afterwards. Also establishing very strong ethical parameters for the therapist. These are boundary-dissolving compounds. There are stories from the past of uh, unscrupulous therapists taking advantage of of a subject or a patient with lowered defensive. That that has to end. And what I'd also put a plug in for is diversity in the field. It's primarily been a field of uh, white males. And uh, we need more diversity. We need women not only being in the field, but assuming positions of leadership. We need people of color. We need to work with not only upper middle class, middle class subjects and patients, we need to work with people from the bottom rungs of society and see how it might be of value in, you know, with that population as well. So there's a great deal of work to do. I think um, the pioneer generation, Ralph's generation, and his colleagues, the people we wrote about in our, in our book, Higher Wisdom, um, and, and my generation, my, that I, you know, my, the, of the Hefters right. and uh, other colleagues, um, we, we're establishing a foundation, but it's going to be up to the younger generations moving up who are going to take it forward. But, but to do so, you've got to do it right, and you've got to be careful, and you've got to, uh, above and beyond everything else, optimize patient safety. Well, Charlie, I can just put that whole summation in a nutshell and say they should just follow your example. <laughs> Thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Lorenzo. I look forward to your talk tomorrow. You're listening to the Psychedelic Salon, where people are changing their lives one thought at a time. Since I was able to insert my own questions and comments uh, during these interviews, there isn't really very much that I can add right now. However, uh, well, there is one thing that I simply have to comment on. And <laughs> my guess is that the more experienced psychonauts among us are thinking the same thing. You know, it, it may be difficult to think back to your first psychedelic experience. But if you do, I'm pretty sure that you're going to recall experiencing a significant amount of trepidation and fear as the medicine was coming on for your first time. Now, imagine yourself ingesting your first psychedelic substance in a prison hospital room, (laughs) surrounded by serious criminals, and then try to imagine the terror that Ralph Metzner must have felt that day, and think about what awesome courage it must have taken for him to go ahead with that experience. The resurgence in psychedelic research is truly resting on a foundation laid by giants. And uh, speaking of that, Tonight in the live salon, my guests will be Greg and Tanya Manning, who have been Ann and Sasha Shulgin's right and left hands for more than a decade. Now, while I've podcast over 20 programs featuring Ann and Sasha, tonight we're going to hear a little more about Sasha as the fascinating conversationalist he was, which is something that sometimes gets overlooked due to the amazing amount of serious chemistry that he accomplished. And uh, if all goes well, I'll podcast the audio recording of tonight's salon in the weeks ahead. But for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends. <laughs>